The following episode contains sensitive content. It is recommended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which we meet and the land on which you are listening. We pay our respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the country on which this podcast was recorded. This podcast was produced in a private residence in Marrickville, Sydney, and is a completely independent production. We do not act on behalf of any organisation or sponsor. Our views are entirely our own. You're about to join a conversation between two women from Sydney, Australia, talking about losing their loved one to suicide. It is unscripted. This is ordinary people sharing their lived experience. This is Talking Lived. any big discoveries or were there things that you actually didn't know about uh, Jason until after he died? Anything, I don't know, affairs, addictions, hobbies, interests, birthmarks? <laughs> there were actually and I, I think we possibly wouldn't have uncovered those things if his death hadn't occurred in the just explosive way that it occurred so there was a lot of arguments and a lot of conflict and a lot of anger he was a terrifying person in the last couple of weeks of his life and it I, he was just emotionally and psychologically unraveling uh, and he'd never actually been an angry person at all he's a, he was actually a very gentle spirited person, very uh, kind of kind soul for much of his life, which I think was even the more shocking to see this person react with such just white hot rage and very, very angry with, there was was really no one he wasn't angry with, to be honest with you. Um, Everyone was on his radar. So I think if that hadn't preceded his death, we were left with so many questions that we needed answers to. And it was in the search or the exploration of the immense digital archive that we leave behind now in terms of our laptops and our emails and our messaging and our mobile phones. We did a deep dive into all of that stuff after he died and in in an effort to work out what on earth was going on because this uh, he bore very little resemblance at the end of his death to the person that I had known in the 27 years that we'd been together and in that how do I summarize I think if I kept looking we would have kept discovering things he was deeply paranoid and he was definitely that way in the last two weeks of his life because we could see it, in, observe it in his behaviour. And he was suspicious and angry, interpreted things that you'd said in a way that you didn't intend and that you were an enemy. Uh, that paranoia had actually pre... It had been there for years. But we only see what people want us to see. So what we found were hundreds of hours of videos that had been recorded of us in the house. Um, Compromising and not very nice videos, uh, which in the last two weeks of his life, he was threatening 
his daughters with releasing those things on social media if they didn't come home and basically bend to his will. And he used that really dramatic, overstated supervillain language when he, when he spoke to his daughters. So there was a whole lot of stuff around that, that there was a degree of paranoia, that everyone was against him, his workplace were against him, his family were against him. So it was like he'd been amassing a catalogue of things that he was going to then use against us. And we went through some of those videos. And the worst part was that, saddest, I don't know, is that what he saw in those videos was normal family life in a strange... Like, he'd recorded really... I don't know. It, it certainly didn't make us look bad, let's put it that way. Right. Um, but in his mind... Um, so there was a whole lot of there was a whole lot of paranoia that we weren't aware of, uh, and there was a massive, massive drug addiction. So he had built up relationships with um, overseas suppliers of black market drugs, and one of the reasons why I left one, um, in addition to. Um, his psychotic behaviour. There's no, and I don't use that in a kind of that term in a in a flippant way. He was in a deep psychosis, um, yeah. and his behaviour was erratic and scary. Um, but the other reason I left is because I found thousands of strips of drugs that he had ordered online from Bangladesh, from China, from India, and they were all versions of antidepressants, uh, um, uh, what's the word for it, uh, like serotonin knockoffs. Right. So there were all of these like knockoffs of prescription drugs so that either to pep you up or to make you sleepy. But mm. I mean thousands of them. And in the discovery process through his email trail, what we found was that he'd had a relationship with these, these companies for years. We tried to tell the police about this after he died and said, this is actually a problem. There are people actually bringing these drugs in. And it was even to the point where the email discussions between the companies, they would advise him when he made the order how to label it so that it wouldn't be uncovered by customs. Right. So we got a lot of seashells sent to our house. <laughs> and Jason was also a hoarder, so we, we knew about that, so he was a compulsive shopper. And up to the ceiling was stacked. With, our house was... There were rooms that we couldn't walk into because there were boxes to the ceiling. So he would compulsively order things and then would stack that to the ceiling. Stack to the ceiling, he'd never open them. And recognised that was part of the problem. Was he doing that because it was actually a way of concealing effectively, like a trafficking of drugs, really? Was he doing that because it was concealing that? And he was selectively opening those parcels that just had drugs in them? Or was it just disordered, wild thinking, and drugs were just part of it. You know, it was all part of a compulsion that he couldn't control. So I, I, I do not know where to end with that because we just kept <laughs> Still making so many discoveries. Mysteries. 
<laughs> and the photographs he took of himself. I don't even know where to start with that. And there were hundreds of them. Mm. Um, he, there, there was a, he was defined when he got his anxiety and depression diagnosis, he was also defined with having an addictive tendency, an addictive personality. And that manifested he was addicted to work. He was definitely addicted to his accum. He was a, 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 like a collector. He addictively accumulated things. There were a lot of compulsions. So we just kept uncovering more and more manifestations of the way that that addiction, I think, kept taking shape. And part of it was in taking a lot of chemical substances um, very, very, very cheaply. Um, it, it, some of that stuff in terms of the email discussion between those companies and Jason in the last 12 months of his life, it, is, it was heartbreaking to reread it because we knew, in retrospect, we know how vulnerable he was and the, the incredibly vulnerable mental state that he was in. And they were, oh, sir, don't just buy 500 of those um, serotonin um, knockoffs. I mean, they have their own name for it. Pain-O-Max or something, you know, they weren't... And they were not paracetamol. I don't know what the hell was in these drugs. Mm. Um, but they were all some version of Xanax, um, you know, Effexa, uh, Lyrica. They were all kind of knockoffs of that. They would be upselling to him in the email, don't buy 500. If you're buying 500 and they're only 50 cents each, if you buy 1,500, they'll only be 10 cents each. So upsell... It, it, is, it was heartbreaking to read a lot of that because yeah. an incredibly vulnerable person who was just being, here's some more candy. Taken advantage of. Yeah. 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 So, so many mysteries. Sorry, I spoke Tanya. for a very, very long time. How about you? What discoveries did you make after, after Gabby died? Well, she had found out that she had... That one of the things that was the most shocking to me, and I realised that I knew it, but I had forgotten it in the chaos, and she had been diagnosed with a precancerous thing in her womb. So that was like literally two weeks before she died. Um, so, you know, she had that, and you wonder, gee, did that actually add to, you know, that vulnerable state? I think what you're talking about is the vulnerable state that we recognise in hindsight that they were in and then the different things that happened to her in the lead-up to that. Um, the other thing that, well, really, what other secrets? Um, you know, the fact that she kept my communications from... You know, I didn't know that she hadn't been telling her that my communication with her partner was blocked. I was misled into thinking oh he's on her side he you know i uh, this because whole you, thing about whether you had raised concern raised concern you were worried about gabby and you were trying to raise those concerns with her partner that's you, right at the time yeah. and yeah I, yeah i was i was desperate to communicate with him so yeah. i was i was sending him messages all the time saying look this is in you know gabby's in trouble we really need 
Uh, she needs help. You can't go back to site until we've got help. We can't leave her. And then I got these messages back from him, but actually I didn't know they weren't from him. They were for, from her. So she had hijacked his his phone or his messages and intercepted them somehow and was answering everything. So that was a surprise to me because I couldn't yeah, it, it kind of furthered me into that position. Oh, here's the hysterical mother. If her partner thinks she's okay and, you know, oh, it's all right, mum, we're going to move back to Perth and, uh, you know, I don't know if I'll ever talk to you again and, um, you know, but we're sorting things out. And, you know, you had the sense, oh, she's giving me the impression that her and her partner are on the same page with something and he's backing her in and I am the crazy one. You know, that was the sort of... The, the mispositioning of of the situation, which really only revealed itself after she was dead. Are there things that you think Gabby consciously tried to keep hidden? during her lifetime and how do you reflect on those things now was it sort of are there accidental secrets were there purposeful secrets how much design do you think was in it from her point of view well I think one thing that is apparent to me now that wasn't at the time was that Gabby I think she was aware that she had difficulties she had become aware that she had certain restrictions in the way she acted with people. She didn't respond in the same way people did. She sort of understood there was, she was different and that there were some challenges in what she was doing, but I don't think she understood what those differences were. And it's only in hindsight that I think she was actively looking for them and I think that's, I don't know whether we've talked about this before, but I think she was trying to, in her social science studies, look at all of these different um, diagnoses and try to categorise herself in there. I remember one time when I lived out at, at Warragamba and she was, they travelled around Australia in a caravan and did a working holiday and she was stayed with me for a couple of months and on the way through and I said um, I it was one of those times when I tried to uh, do a little bit of a what do they call not an inter intervention intervention yeah. and where I said Gabby you cannot keep taking these drugs because these drugs are affecting you mentally they're affecting your brain they are physically affecting the functioning of your brain and I'm concerned that you are losing the plot that that's not helping you and we had a big big fight that night and she in hindsight I go oh she was so scared you know it was yeah. so scary and after that she started saying to me oh well you're you're, uh, you're insane actually and starting to try and put me in the position that she felt I was putting her in. Yeah. I was trying to say, I wasn't saying you're mad, I was trying to say what you are putting into your body is unsettling your mind and I want your mind back so you really have to fight against this addiction. Um, 
but that's not what she heard. She yeah. heard me saying, you're crazy. She always felt it was something about herself intrinsically. I always felt it was about something she was doing to herself. Yeah. And I think she felt like it was a, something about the inside of herself. Yeah. And that really didn't become apparent to me till after she died. Yeah, actually so much of what you've said, there were, ec- there were echoes of that in, uh, I don't want to say, uh, look, there, there was a, a long lead up um, to, I guess, the recognition that Jason had a drug problem and he had been buying things online for a really, really long period of time in really small doses. So you'd just end up with a strip of something that he'd purchased from India and it was some version of an antidepressant. And this was a couple of years before he died and I'd say, you don't know what's in this. Anything It could be something really, really toxic. You've got no idea. Shit, you're right. So I'd get what I'd get was a lot of reassurance that, no, you're right, it, it, look, it probably will interfere with the drugs because he was on many prescription drugs. He was on multiple prescription drugs as well and on really high dosages of them to manage his depression because it was so bad. Um, oh, yeah, it'll, it'll interfere with my drugs. So what I'd get is a retreat position from him and a lot of reassurances that, like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to do that again. It was crazy. What it did was push the behaviour even further underground um, so in terms of there being deliberate or accidental secrets, again, it's one of those things where you're holding two, I feel like I'm holding two competing things, thoughts or reflections about it in the same way. He absolutely was making those decisions and making those calls and ordering stuff and, you know, ordering off the dark web. But at the same time, to what extent was he in control of what was happening to him? Because desperate people do really desperate things. And, yeah, yeah it, it's it's another aspect of just feeling incredibly sad yes. about how sad mm. he must have felt. And, um, but, again, I, I kind of... Another echo in terms of your experience is that when you would raise, I would raise things with Jason as a partner, and I recognise that's different when a mum and a daughter, that's a different relationship, but when I would try to raise things as a partner, often, sometimes they'd get a response would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally, yeah, it's probably a bad idea, or I would get a wall of aggression back. Well, what about you? Mm. What about when you... Who's crazy here? There was a whole lot. Of, so what, if there was any suggestion that I was trying to kind of say, look, I think this might be a problem. We probably need to go back to the doctor. You probably need to stop doing it. It was not received well. Um, and I don't know what the heck you do. No. Well, uh, I, it stopped me. Gabby accusing me of being mentally insane stopped me from going down that track, you know, in a way it was effective in yeah. that it it kept me at bay because I realised like, oh, you really, if someone says that to you, you've got no leg to stand on and it felt unfair and unreasonable. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So did you get 
get any new insights from these discoveries? Did did finding things out help to give you more understanding of what had occurred? Definitely, in our case. And I, I think because... I, I think one of the big mysteries we had is that we had a lot of literacy, I think, in our family about Jason's mental illnesses. So he'd been diagnosed with anxiety and depression. He'd spent periods of time in hospital. He'd had two really, really bad depressive episodes where he'd been off work for long periods of time and there was a slow management kind of getting him back to a place where he was feeling okay. That kind of cycled around, you know, long over the course of more than a decade. So there's a lot of literacy. What the mystery from our little family's perspective, myself and my two daughters, is that his behaviour was so different, so angry, so erratic, so paranoid, so blaming. He was very blaming of other people. He was never responsible for anything that happened to him. And there was a lot of talk about how his needs always needed to be put above... In fact, our needs of any kind were not of any priority because he was the breadwinner, that was the way he... And that we needed to basically shut up. That was not the person I knew. It wasn't his personality. It wasn't... So we're left with a situation and it's like, how did that person become... Look, in the general, you know, uh, lay person's reading of it, it's like he had a narcissistic personality disorder at the end of his life. That's not consistent with the person that we'd observed in a non-depressive state or in a depressive state. So we'd seen Jason in both of those states and it's like, what is this thing that is going on, this behaviour? The answer for us, when you spin addiction into that, that answered all of the questions I think we had around those behaviours because mm. it was the only thing that consistently explained all of it and that he, it transformed him as a person because effectively he was still in there but it's like he was being held hostage. That's the way I think of it anyway, um, is that he, he wasn't... We were talking to a version of him mm. but not the version that we had known. Um, and when people are chemically altered, they do some freaky shit. Yeah. Um, and they often attack people that are the closest to them um, and that trust is under, you know, absolutely undermined. And we, we couldn't really trust anything that he said because his behaviour was so erratic and so difficult. Addiction explained all that. Mm. Um, and that was an answer that we only got after he died and we put the little puzzle pieces together. How about you? I like how you called it, how he was being held hostage by the addictions, that he was still in there but you couldn't... Uh, but, uh, you know, you couldn't get to him. And I, I guess the insights for me after this conversation is, is really knowing that a lot of the sort of... Um, Gabby's behaviour, her, her hitting out, her fighting, were all ruses to keep me away or keep other people away from her vulnerable spot, to keep you away from that, from knowing that little girl was held hostage because she felt so, I think, powerless in that situation. It was a, a place of, of great, great vulnerability and 
you know, she couldn't go there. And everything was to keep you at bay from that because I don't know if it was a boundary, if we crossed that boundary. And I think when she was uh, scheduled in the hospital um, 10 days before she died, they looked at her diary and that was a boundary that was violated that felt like that could not then be resolved. That thing has happened. I cannot come back from that. And uh, that violation had happened and everything that she did to me was to keep me away from how, you know, this hurt person or this this vulnerable human being. And I can't really explain it uh, more than that. The discoveries that you made after Gabby died, secrets perhaps that she held during the course of her life, do you think they've altered how you feel about her now? Oh, well, I, I will always, always, always love my daughter to bits. Um, and in a way, it gives me greater understanding. Uh, you know, the other... I guess insight is thinking about um, maybe there was greater personal intent uh, within her suicide than I give her credit for. I don't want to, you know, if I say her suicide is an accident, am I removing her agency, you know, from her? Am I then saying, oh, she's not something she really chose when it was something she really chose? So it's tricky territory. Um, but all of the, the secrets, gee, I don't know. I just always will, you know, maybe more understanding, more more compassion. She One of the things she used to say to me was, uh, oh, mum, you know, people with addictions are, are just treated like crap in this society. Once, once someone knows you've got an addiction, then everything you say is just completely negated and, you know, you're not... You're not seen as human anymore. You're just seen as um, like of no value, and and I think that is true. And it was a point maybe she was trying to get through to me, and I felt like, but Gabby, I do respect you, and I was always trying to communicate that deep respect of her and an extreme disrespect of the effect of the substance. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's what I would be it, trying to communicate. But I just don't think that ever got through. Yeah, it, it just makes you more protective of them, doesn't it? Yes. It's not less. It yes. makes you more fiercely protective of yes. them. Yes, yeah. Um, and it's, look, it's left me with, look, I'm not, I wasn't a pro-drug, anti-drug person. I was kind of neutral. I'm not a drug taker. They don't really interest me. I now have the most liberal attitude to drug regulation as a result of this because I, I really think that the fear, I think, that was underlining a lot of his behaviour about fear of being caught and fear of looking bad, yeah. I really think it stopped him from getting help and being as open about how much of a hole he dug himself in and he couldn't he couldn't be honest about that because he was scared that he was going to get in trouble um so yeah I have a very it's like let's not make this a criminal offense because it's stopping people from getting help um and preventing them from reaching out to a system that's already struggling so it's already hard enough to get hurt let's not put more barriers in front of people
content development and background research by Joni Janaway and Tanya Bretherton. Sound, music and audio, pre- and post-production provided by Patty O'Rourke. If this conversation has been difficult for you, if you're experiencing suicidal thoughts or feelings, or if you're just having a really tough time right now, there is help out there. Lifeline is available 24 hours on their hotline at 131114. The Suicide Callback Service is also available at 1300 659 467. If you're having a hard time and not even sure how to start the conversation, remember that a trusted GP or a family doctor is also a good place to start.